0: Our Father, we ask that uh, today you would send your spirit to soften our hearts, um, to be able to hear what you would have us to know this morning through uh, your words here from Romans 2. Give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, and help us in humility receive what you have in store for us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Who needs Jesus the most? Who needs Jesus the most? And maybe that's a question we can begin with today because in some ways it's a surprising answer. You know, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells the story of two men who went to the temple to pray. There's a Pharisee who stood up and he started praying, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I earn. That was the prayer of the Pharisee. The tax collector is standing far away. He can't even lift up his eyes to God. And he just looks down. He's beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Who needs the gospel the most? Who needs Jesus the most in that story? In Luke 15, Jesus tells another story of two brothers, right? The younger one took his father's money, went off to a faraway land. Let's just call it Vegas, okay? He partied, he gambled, he was drinking day and night, visiting places he probably should not be, being with prostitutes, wasted all of his father's money, ends up on the street with nothing. But he has a brother who was extremely responsible, faithful, This older brother never left his father, never disobeyed him. You know, he stayed to take care of the family farm. He was loyal. He was obedient. He went to church with his dad. And yet at the end of the story, who is united with the dad? It's the younger brother, the prodigal, right? And who is alienated from the father? It's the responsible one who is resentful, angry, The responsible, faithful, dutiful, religious. They need the gospel. He needs the gospel. We need the gospel. These two stories come to mind for me as I began reading the first few verses of this passage this morning. Because imagine this church in first century Rome, which received Paul's letter for a second. They're gathered for worship. The letter, this letter is being read aloud during the worship service. And you have in this room first maybe a bunch of non-Jews who came to believe in Jesus as the Savior of the world. These men and women who lived life apart from God as citizens of Rome. A life apart from the law of God who now know they have been forgiven, redeemed, and made children of God. And you also have in that room some Jewish Christians, those who have known God's law all their lives. They try to be obedient to the Ten Commandments and to the Scriptures, and now they have come to put their faith in Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah. So can you imagine all these Jewish Christians who have been living this very religious life as minorities in Rome, listening to Paul read, Chapter one, especially eighteen to thirty-two, the section that David preached on last week, saying, "Yeah, that's right." Finally, the wrath of God is being revealed against ungodliness of and all sorts of sin, sexual sin, greed, murder, haters of God. Everyone's just nodding along, right? And you hear an amen maybe thrown in here and there, and then in Romans two one, Paul drops the hammer. You have no excuse, oh man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. I mean, imagine these people, you know, they must be dumbfounded because they were like, wait a second, what, what do you mean we do the same things? You know, and I'm going to unpack this a little bit uh, during the rest of the sermon, but this chapter is really about the hiddenness of sin. Because sin is just at work in those who are like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son or the Pharisee in Jesus' story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. In the same way, as Jesus said in Matthew 21, verse 31, truly I say to you, The tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. These are sobering words uh, from our Lord. And here's why we need to understand this. Because in order to experience the power of God in the gospel, we need to begin by recognizing how desperately we actually need him. And the passage is asking us, do you know you need the gospel? You know, and maybe you just use that as kind of a framework because there's so many technical things in here, and it's kind of complicated, but I want to make this kind of clear and boil it down for you. And I think that's the question it's asking us. And one of the reasons that the gospel is actually applicable to every person, regardless of race and ethnicity, gender, your background, economic status, or if you're religious or non-religious, is because the gospel uniquely And powerfully addresses a core issue that all of us as human beings deal with, what the Bible calls sin. And in our passage, Paul is dealing with an aspect of sin. Of course, David was talking about sin last week, too. But he's talking about something here which is more hidden, far more maybe insidious, because he's saying there can be a distorted form of rule-keeping, obeying the law, law of God, which leads... It's a kind of self-righteousness that Jesus called out often. You know, because we often look out at society and think, you know, there's all these people who don't obey God. There's just so much licentiousness in the world. No one thinks there's anything right wrong. Everybody gets to do whatever they want, right? But then those people who think that's a problem often fail to recognize in their own lives usually, that they have a distorted form of obeying the law of God that is actually causing the same problem. And that sends from this very same distorted heart a heart of sin. So what we want to look at today is a couple of things. First, I want us to look at the hidden nature of legalism. And then we want to look, look, uh, take a little deeper look at the heart of legalism. And then we want to ask, well, what do we do? Um, How do we find a path forward? What does God offer here? So let's look at the hidden nature of legalism to start. Look at verse 17 with me again. And uh, if you look at verse 17 down to 21, he begins to say a few things. I'm not going to reread it, but if you just look at it carefully, you're going to notice three times he refers to these people, these Jewish people here, Jews who rely on the law. He says in verse 17, those who rely on the law, they rely on the law and boast in God, okay? In verse 18, you see that those who are instructed from the law, and in verse 20, those who have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, He's talking about a group of people who are law keepers. These are whom we would call in our daily lives good people. But Paul is saying there's a deep-seated problem with people who view themselves in this way. And this is where we go back to verse 1. And he says, every one of you who judges, every one of you judges, if you're passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, Practice the very same things. He's saying there's this deep hypocrisy. And this begins to tease out this hidden nature of legalism, which is when you think about all those who have no regard for God and his laws and you look at them with a judgmental attitude here. Yes, you not, and you think they're the problem, you know. And that's awful. And you're going through this all in your mind. And here immediately Paul flips it on its head and says, "You have no excuse, because you do the very same thing." And maybe you're saying, "Well, come on, how is it that we're doing the very same things? I don't see it. Well, that's the whole point. It's hidden here, OK? Um, that's why he says, in verse 21, "You who teach others against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery?" He's saying you do the same things, but you don't notice or recognize that you do those things. Then Ariely, uh, who's a behavioral economist, uh, wrote a book entitled The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. And um, in it, he cites a lot of experiments that show most of us, most of us, are very willing to lie or to cheat, or to steal. And, but the key thing is, people who do this, just do it just a little bit. Because we want to be able to maintain the illusion to others and to ourselves, that we actually don't lie or cheat or steal very much. And in fact, we're pretty good people. And he calls this the fudge factor. We like to fudge things. And here's what he writes. He says, in a nutshell, The central thesis is that our behavior is driven by two opposing motivations. On the one hand, we want to view ourselves as honest, honorable people. We want to be able to look ourselves in the mirror and feel good about ourselves. And psychologists call this ego motivation. And on the other hand, we want to benefit from cheating as much as we can. So how do we secure the benefit of cheating and at the same time view ourselves as honest? He says we accomplish this by what he calls cognitive flexibility. That's a nice technical word, but to me that just sounds like hypocrisy. Maybe we just call it that. It's simpler. I don't know. Cognitive flexibility. Okay. Uh, But thanks to human skill, as long as we cheat, only a little bit we can maintain the illusion to others and ourselves that we're not really, really cheating. And that balancing act is the key to the process of human rationalization. Do you you understand what he's saying? He's saying, you know, the person who shakes their head when they read another headline of the scandalous story of, I don't know, Sam Bankman fried Elizabeth Holmes, or how about all those involved in that college admissions cheating scandal a few years ago? Do you remember all this stuff? And then later on that evening, you're home, you're working on your business expense report. Or you opened up your TurboTax on your browser and you're doing your income tax. And you just fudge it just a little bit to benefit yourself. And Paul is saying, you who preach against stealing, do you steal? The person who shakes their head at the rampant sexuality in our culture, oh my goodness, look at this stuff on TV. I can't even believe there are people who watch Game of Thrones. My goodness, okay? Things were so different when I was growing up, and yet, you know what they're doing at night? When no one is around, they're watching porn on their phone. Do you you understand what the Bible's trying to say here? You tell people do not commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You know, the, the person who is angry and abhorred by the growing secularism of our society and they rant about it, and yet they come to church so that others can approve of their religious performance. Perhaps the greatest idolatry. You see how all of this works? Outside, you're seemingly righteous, keeping the law, and yet you are in need of the gospel, the power of God. You know, all of this fudging. I had a couple of people come up to me after the first service and to remind me, did you know Dan Ariely? He's being investigated for fudging his stats. I think it's funny he wrote a book called The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. Okay? The hypocrisy not keeping the law this is what paul is saying is the hidden nature of legalism here we shake our heads we wag our fingers at other people but we don't like looking at ourselves honestly in the mirror right we're trying to maintain a facade of respectability and paul is saying you know what god sees right through it we can deceive ourselves we can deceive others But Paul is saying again, don't think that God is deceived. And we are foolish to believe that we don't see this. Others don't see it or that God doesn't see it. This is the hidden nature of legalism. Now, let's drive in a little further here. Let's look at the heart of legalism. Because look look with me at verse 5 here for a second. You know, he, Paul begins to say, let me just read it. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Notice what he says here. You know what you're storing up for yourself if you're this kind of hypocrite? Wrath for yourself. And what's interesting in this uh, passage is the word for storing up is a word that Paul uses in another place like 1 Corinthians 16, where Paul is using it positively to encourage the church in Corinth to store up, to treasure up money as a gift for those in poverty and experiencing hardship in the church in Jerusalem. Jesus also uses this word to store up, to treasure up, to storing up treasures in heaven in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Same phrase. But Paul is doing a play on words here. He says, you know, when you keep the law in this way, you're not treasuring up, you know, things of heaven. You're not treasuring up good things for yourself. You're treasuring up the wrath and the anger of God. And he's beginning to help us understand our relationship to the law here and how this all works. The motivation and the mindset behind it. Because the person who is deeply entwined into legalism has a particular view and perspective of God and his law. And it's God as God is a vending machine. You know, you take all of your good deeds and you deposit this in God's vending machine and he's supposed to spit out blessing. It's like being at a carnival game and you're collecting all these tickets at like, you know, um, I don't know, David Buster's and you're trying to collect and collect and then you get... This one prize you really want, and you, in many ways, treat God this way. And I know many of you who grew up in the church, you know, you know that is wrong theologically. You know Christianity doesn't work that way, and neither does God. But uprooting this from our hearts is really hard. And it's really difficult, because we love storing up all of our good deeds to cash it out one day. Not just with God, also with others. And how do we know this to be true? Because I think we know this because we all do this. And this is what I mean. Look, I know that whenever I get into any kind of conflict, whether it be minor or serious, this is what my heart defaults to. And ask my wife Grace, she's a truth teller. She will tell it to you straight. But you know, when she and I get into an argument or a disagreement, I am so quick to leverage all of my righteous deeds you know you know what i'm talking about i want to say oh, look at all of the good things i'm doing i want this to cancel out whatever i did i know it's bad but let's not talk about that let's look at all the good things i just did and if you want to learn more about this come to the pre-marriage marriage counseling class we're going to have on march 2nd and you'll hear a lot more about it especially those of you who are dating okay but i digress and let's go back to this but Like, if I'm having an argument or disagreement with Grace, and I may say something like, you know, I didn't appreciate what you just said. And I'll launch into all this stuff. You know, after all that I did for you today, I picked up that for myself. I took out the trash. I ran errands when I didn't have time, you know. I sacrificed. And you know, honey, don't forget I'm a pastor, I'm pouring myself out for other people too. And, like, and then sooner or later, I'm catching myself, this has nothing to do with the argument, right? I'm just th- throwing everything on there. I can't get anything by her anyway. But you know what I'm doing? I'm leveraging all the good things that somehow that excuses my behavior. It has nothing to do even with the argument. I'm just piling it on. Hopefully, she overlooks the other stuff. And I think to a degree... We all do this with one another in our relationship and we do this with God. We do this when difficulties come into our lives and we begin to say, I can't believe that I'm going through this. God, I've been following you faithfully. I've sacrificed. I've, I've actually obeyed when my friends didn't. And I'm in a really tough situation at work you, you know, Lord, my relationship, this one that I've been praying, about, it, this may not work out. How are you allowing this to happen to me? See? Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to express your frustration to God or even cry out to him. That's a lot of the Psalms, right? Psalm 6. How long, oh Lord? How long? You know, there is space to work this out and talk it out with God and with one another, But as you do so, I'm gonna encourage you also to pay attention to your own narrative and your self-righteousness. Because you go in sometimes, as much as I do, God should bless me in this way because I did what you asked me to do. Do you see the deceptive heart of legalism? We begin to rest on our good deeds, minimize all our bad deeds. It's kind of a Jedi mind trick, you know? And we're really good at this. And the scriptures keep telling us God sees right through it. Because at the end of the day, a heart that is legalistic in this way is always, always self-seeking. I didn't have verse 8 in your bulletin. It kind of got cut out because we ran out of space. But let me just read verse 8 for you. It says, For those who are self-seeking... And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And what is Paul saying? You know, when you're doing these things in a self seeking way, you're actually not obeying the truth because this is all about you. You're not doing this because you love God, you're not doing stuff because you want to love your neighbor. You're trying to take your good deeds and put it in this vending machine to get God to do what you want him to do. That's not for his glory. That's not because you think his law is beautiful. That's not because you think what he's asking of us is actually good and beautiful and right. It's going to bless others and our community. No, no, no. It's self-seeking. That's what Paul is pointing out here. You're doing all of this for yourself. And that kind of obedience, Paul is saying, is unrighteousness. And this is why this was such a you know, blow to all these religious Jewish Christians who were sitting there. Or perhaps even the pagans who weren't Jewish but actually lived a very healthy, good life. They're saying, wait a second, wait, we all need the gospel? I think they need it more than we do because we're not keeping the law because we love God or love our neighbor. We're storing these things up as kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card. And when we don't get our way, and this is how we know if that's the case, we get bitter, resentful, angry, full of pride. Just like the brother, the older brother, in the parable of the prodigal son. Paul is saying here, We're seeking to obey God's law for all the wrong reasons. And when you do that, you have actually not kept the law at all. See? Because what is the kind of fruit of this type of legalism? You know what it's characterized by? Lack of grace, compassion. There's no compassion, there's no mercy. There's only malice, bitterness, heartlessness. There's nothing beautiful, you know. The Apostle Paul him, himself knew all too well about all of this. His self-righteousness in keeping the law, and gosh, like he was really good at it. But you know what that did? It consumed him with anger. And he began to persecute Christians, dragging men and women off to prison, signing off on their execution. He was utterly ruthless until the risen Christ met him on the road to Damascus, confronting him, saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul thought he was doing something righteous. This is all in Acts chapter 9. Towards the end of his life, he reflects on this earlier period about how he kept the law in the letter to the Philippians. And he says, you know what? All that stuff I did, that was all rubbish. It was garbage. It was garbage. It meant nothing. And in Philippians 3.8, he says, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He's saying, I realize I cannot have a righteousness that comes from obeying the law because I never actually did it for all the right reasons. And I need a righteousness that comes from God. It's an echo of Romans 1, 16 and 17. And in Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul is saying, I was freed from my self-salvation strategy that didn't reflect the beauty of God's character in his law. Because the law of God, if you really learn to read it and obey it, you begin to see it's after a kind of person, you know, a kind of a heart, uh, motivation. It's not about external behaviors. Because when law-keeping is self-seeking, we end up demanding everybody else keeps it, but we actually don't demand it of ourselves and God sees through all of this and this is why in verse 6 he says he will render to each one according to his works that's heavy I'm like oh geez okay what do we do we're in trouble okay this is what Paul is saying if you think your righteousness is going to save you you are in trouble what do we do you know one thing I want to ask you to do is maybe this week just sit and reflect on this passage and ask yourself the question, who needs Jesus the most? You know, do you know your need for the gospel, the righteousness of God that comes by faith? Because you're never going to get to the good news of Jesus Christ. You're never going to see the brightness of the dawn if you don't first realize the darkness, the darkness in our own hearts. You know. And I think that's so true. We have to get there in order to see, I can't generate this. God has to do something. Second, and I want to close with this, is verses 28 and 29. This is the end of the passage. It says, uh, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul is starting to talk about circumcision. And you have to remember something. These non-Jews, these regular Roman citizens who became Christians, didn't get circumcised. And the Jews were trying to say, I think you need to have this circumcision to be really authentically a Christian. And Paul is saying, you know what? The outward thing is not the thing. But being a Jew, meaning me being someone who belongs to the people of God, is a matter of the heart. Did you see that in verse 29? And it's something done by the spirit, not by the letter, meaning not by the keeping of the law. And his praise is not from man, but from God. And why is he saying this? He's saying the only solution you have is actually to recognize we all need a new heart. A new heart. And how do we actually get that? You know? Because it's something spiritual, something the spirit does. It's not by our works. It's not by the keeping of the law of the letter. Because what was circumcision in the first place? It's an outward sign of an inward reality. This is why God gave this as a sign to Abraham... Saying, hey, we're going to make a covenant. You're going to be now the father of my people. And the whole point of cutting off the flesh is a way of saying, if, Abraham, you break the promise, we're going to cut you off. You know, the physical reality represented a spiritual reality. But here's the hard part. No one actually kept the covenant. That's the whole point of this chapter. It doesn't matter if it was Abraham, Jacob, you know, I, it doesn't matter. No one was able to keep the covenant. And this is why Paul says in Colossians 2, 11 and 12, just bear with me and follow this uh, kind of argument here. Colossians 2, 11 and 12, it says this. In him also you were circumcised, that him is Jesus, with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands this he set aside nailing it to the cross what what is paul talking about what is this circumcision of christ he's saying there's something jesus does that circumcises our hearts that he gives us a new heart and he's talking about the cross because he said this was set aside nailing it to the cross And he's talking about when Jesus died on the cross, and when you believe in him, it says if he's taking our hearts and we're literally being circumcised with a new heart by the circumcision Jesus did on the cross. Meaning, he was cut off. You see? That's why he calls it a circumcision of Christ on the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God was silent. He was gone. I can't feel you. I can't see you. Here's the only moment in history where someone actually kept the law fully and God did not show up. In Isaiah 53, 8, it says, he was cut off from the land of the living. Why all this cutting off? Because it represented That he was cut off on our behalf. It was bloody. It was violent. He received the wrath, the judgment, all the stuff that, you know, us being hypocrites are bringing out, you know, from God. He's going to rent to us each according to our work. Jesus took all of that on the cross. And he is also saying, you who were circumcised, you received a new heart. You got a new life because all of Christ's love for the law, that can now go in your heart because he paid for all your sins. And now you can begin to read the law properly. And you can say, I will obey because I love God. I love my neighbor. This is no longer about me having to hear the approval of the world, you know, His praise is not from man, but from God. This is verse 29 of Romans 2. Because now you're saying, wait a second, I have the approval of God. I don't need to prove myself. My God loves me. I I don't have to think about him as a vending machine because he is a God who is faithful to his promise. And then you begin to relate to the law differently. And you begin to say, God, I've not been able to keep the law. But you're a God who is good. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You see, and in that moment, we begin to experience this power of the gospel, a righteousness from God, which David talked about last week, begins to show up in our lives. You know, think about that this week as you reflect on Romans 2 to say, Lord, show me where I need to really be able to bring these things before you Because I am one who desperately needs the gospel. And as you follow that path, God is saying, I will meet you there. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you are a faithful God, although we are a faithless people. Your compassion and your faithfulness is as beyond what uh, what we can hope for or imagine. But this morning, by the power of your spirit, would we have a little taste of how much you love us, and are committed to us, and that you are always ready to embrace, forgive, and draw near to us, and help us to exp- experience that afresh in you? And we ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.